Good morning, church. Just want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We are continuing in chapter 17 in what is known as the High Priestly Prayer. And some have, some have said that this is the, the real Lord's Prayer. We know that Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter 6 and, and Luke 11, and, but he actually is, is praying this prayer in, in John 17 as he is preparing himself. He's preparing himself to, to return to the Father. We know that this very next day he is going to be crucified. And so John is recording a lot of this as, as the, in these last few moments last few hours before the Lord Jesus Christ is betrayed, arrested, tried, and eventually crucified for us. So when we look at, at, at John chapter 17, I also want you to notice in your notes that there are three points. And the reason that I, I want you to note that is also point number one you see has seven verses. The other two points only have two verses, so I just want to encourage you, we will be in point number one for a long time. So don't think that, okay, now he's just done with point number one, and so does he have this much to go in the next two points? The answer is no. But to be honest with you, this passage that we are about to look at, you could preach over weeks. There are so many amazing truths in this passage that are an encouragement to us. And, and when we look at the, the, Lord's, um, the Lord's prayer, the high priestly prayer, we see that it is, it is broken down into really three different parts. We, we began last week, and, and we, we see this interchange between the Son to the Father, and it's, it's, it's truly about Jesus Christ. And now we are turning our attention to the second part, which is the Lord Jesus Christ praying for the eleven. We know that Judas has just left. He's just went out to, to betray Jesus. And so now Jesus turns his attention to, to pray for these 11 disciples. And then Lord willing, next week, he's going to follow this with praying for those of us who believe in, in their testimony. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at verses 9 through 19 this morning. So please um, listen as I read the word of God to us. The Word of God reads, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we hear these, these words of, of your Son, our, our great high priest, and we recognize his great love and care for, for his disciples and by extension to us. Lord, we thank you that we have a, a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. We thank you that he was willing to be sent into the world to, to be the, the sacrifice for our sins. We thank you that he conquered death and ascended to the Father, that, and that he has now sent these 12 disciples into the world, and by extension, we have come to believe. Lord, we thank you for the faith that we have in Jesus Christ, and we pray that, that you would continue to build your church because we have that promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, bless our time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. How many of us know that relationships are important? We all know that, don't we? Relationships are important. In fact, as, as Christians, I believe that the closer you are to somebody, the clo closer you are to somebody, there's a, a greater responsibility that we have for, to, to care for them. And I think we see that in Scripture. You know, we are, we are told that uh, husbands are to what? To, to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands are not to love every wife, but to love their wives. We know that it, it says that wives are to love and respect their husbands, to, to not, not to respect and, and obey every husband. We know that the Word of God says, if a man does not care for his own household, he is worse than an unbeliever. That means that, yes, we have to care for our own household. We don't have to care for every household. And lastly, we see in Galatians, it says, do good to all people, to, to all people, but especially those who are of the household of faith. We have a greater responsibility to those in, in the household of God than we do to the unbelieving world out there. And we, I think we see that partially in this passage. You know, in my life, this has affected how I pray. The closer the relationships I have with people, the more that I pray for them. And I see these concentric circles that are expanding. Before I was married, what did I pray for? I prayed for a wife. I knew that God had not called me to be, uh, to be single, so I prayed for a wife, and, and God graciously granted me that prayer, and when He gave me a wife, I knew that that circle was a little bit bigger, and we were one, and, and my responsibility was to pray for her. As God graciously granted us children, four children, one after another, I began to pray for those four children, even while we talked about earlier, even while they were in the womb I would pray for them. As these children grew older, they have, some of them have, have been married, and, and now I, I pray for their, their spouses. Yes, I, I prayed for their spouses long before when my kids were young, we would pray for their spouses. You know, and because we did this because we cared for them. And the things that we, we generally prayed for, for our children were, were for, protect, for protection, 
that they would know and, and honor the Lord and that they would serve the Lord. And I think that that theme is, is present in this passage. Jesus cares for his disciples, and because he cares for them, he prays for them. And so the, the main point that I see in this passage in John chapter 17, verse 9 through 18, is that Jesus prays for his disciples so that they would be prepared for gospel mission. They're being sent out into the world. Jesus is leaving them, and he wants to pray that they would be prepared for that, that mission. He, he prays for their protection. He prays for, for their sanctification, and he prays for their mission. And over these last few chapters, he's, he's been instructing his disciple, and he's, he, it's that final teaching moment. In just a short time, he's going to be arrested, and on the very next day, he's going to be crucified. And so Jesus is preparing them to have a, a life without them. And I just want you to note this, that, that Jesus is praying for them even though he is, is about to, to be arrested, mocked, and scourged, and crucified. And where is his mind? His mind is, at this point, on, on the disciples, because he loves them, and he cares for them. Aren't, aren't you glad that we, that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses? who lives to intercede for us? I mean, I think this, this prayer, this high priestly prayer, is a, a model of, of what Jesus is doing on an ongoing basis in heaven as He intercedes for you and I. He loves us so much that He continues to intercede for all of those that the Father has given to Him. It shows His great love for us, and He knows what's ahead for Him. He knows that He will be rejected. He knows that He, he will be tried. He knows that He will be beaten. He knows that He will be mocked. He knows that He will be crucified, and He prays, not for Himself, but for them. And He prays because He knows that the things that He is facing, he, they are going to face as well. He knows that He's going to be sending them out into a hostile world. And aren't you glad that He intercedes for us? Because we, we live more and more in a, in a world that is hostile to our Christian faith. And sadly, I don't think people hate us enough. And what I mean by that is, I think if we were truly living out the Great Commission and we were proclaiming the gospel to every creature, I think the world would hate us more than it does right now. We know that there are places in this, in this world that our brothers and, and sisters are, are being persecuted, and it's being pers they're being persecuted because they are so different than the culture that they are in. But sadly, I think many times we are not that different. I was reflecting on that as, as I was preparing my sermon that, you know, I am actually very loved at work. My employees really do like me. They think that I'm a good boss. I, I think there's something good about that. I think we want people to, to think that we are the best of, of people, that we love God, we love them. But it, it made me wonder, am I proclaiming the truth of the gospel enough to them? Yes, I know there's, there's truth that we need to proclaim the gospel and we need to live it out. But, but sadly, I don't think that we are, are hated enough, if you understand what I mean. So what we see here is, in these three points, is Jesus praying for his disciples. And the first, first thing we see is Jesus prays for their protection. 
while they're in the world. They are in the world. Look back at verse 9 again. He says, I am praying for them. He's praying again for those 11 disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And we said this last week that you know, there, we see this, this unity that Jesus has with, with the Father. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 11, he goes on, and I am no longer in the world. He's, he's speaking uh, in the future tense. He's, he's saying, uh, clearly, he's still in the world at this point. But what he is saying is, is that it is a done deal. What is going to happen is already in place. God is going to, to fulfill Jesus' mission he will be crucified the very next day. He says, I am no longer in the world, but, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And I, I, I'm praying for them because I'm going to be with you, and they're going to be left behind in the world. And he is praying for them because as he leaves, they will be his representatives in the world. And Jesus' entire missionary focus is, is being handed off to these, to these 11 men, and by, by extension to us. I mean, just think of it. In the upper room, there's these 11 disciples left there. And from these 11 disciples, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is, is basically descended from them. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about who led me to the Lord and who brought me to church. And I was thinking, trying to think, well, I wonder who brought him to church. And I, I think I know who that was. But that's as far back as I can get. I can't. I don't know which disciple it was that, that eventually led me to come to Christ, but it was one of them. I mean, we know when, when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, thousands came to know him. But we know that it's these leaven that he, he prays for, and these men, you have to understand that they know that Jesus is going away, and they're, and they're scared to death, and they can't really comprehend what is about to happen. And, and we know that after his arrest, they, they, what, they're all scattered. But because of, this, because of this prayer, we know that they eventually return, and we know that all of them, with the exception of, of, of John, were told that in, in church history that every one of these men gave their lives for Christ. They were willing to, to suffer for Christ. And in these verses, notice that we see a, a distinction between His disciples and the world. And, and lest we think that, okay, Jesus, Jesus doesn't pray for the world in this passage. So, we don't have to pray for the world. No, I don't think that's, that's what he's getting at. I think we know that, that God's Word says God so what? He loved the world. We know that Jesus loves the world. We know that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus instructs us to what? To pray for our enemies who are, who are part of the world. And if you look down just in our passage, look down at verse, verses 20 and 21. He says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. No, I, I'm not going to ask for, for these only. The, no, he, he's praying for them, but he, he also wants to eventually pray for us as well. But for all those who believe in me through your word, that they 
may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, there's a desire to, for, for the gospel mission to go out, that others would, would be saved out of the world. You know, in verse 23, it says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as I have loved, as you have loved me. Brothers and sisters, we know that we are to be separate from the world, and, but, but the world is, is, is not our enemy. The world is really what? It's, it's, it's our place that we are to go and preach the gospel. It's the mission field. Yes, I believe that, again, we are not to love the things of the world, the, the wicked world systems, we, but we are already in the world. And I, I remember when my wife and I, we were raising our kids, and, and we wanted to protect our kids, and one of the, the kind of the sayings we had, and I, I was thinking about this, we, we wanted to what? Insulate. Insulate our children, but not to isolate our children. And, and, and what we meant by that is we, we wanted to give them those things that were good and right, and that they would understand who the Lord was, and, but we didn't want to isolate them because we wanted... To them to know that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We wanted them to be ambassadors for Christ someday. But when they were young, guess what? They were part of the world. Before they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they were part of the world. And until our children do put their faith and trust in Christ, we have to realize that we, we pray for those. We seek for them to know the Lord. And so we, we, would, we would insulate our, our children by teaching them what is good and right. On a physical level, I thought there was times that I should probably insulate my sons because there was a lot of times that they would always have big bumps on their heads <laughs> during those growing spurts. And, and you're thinking, if I just bubble wrap them. <laughs> and so with our children or with our... The ones that God has entrusted, no, we, we want to protect them. We, and God does that. He, Jesus wants to protect His disciples. I like what Paul says in, in Romans 13. He says, I want you to be wise. I want you to be wise to that which is good, but ignorant to that which is evil. We would, we would teach our children what was good and right and pure. We did not teach our children about all the sin that is in the world. We get enough of that from the world, don't we? No, we isolate our children, and, and, or not isolate our children, but insulate them. You know, our children are, are the, the mission field, and so we, we pray for them. And no matter where we are in the world, we have to see that as our, as our mission field. But, but there is a separation here, isn't there? And he is praying that, the, that they would have the, uh, an impact on the world and that the world would not have an impact on them. And the Lord is praying for these men who would experience extreme persecution, as I said, from the world. And ultimately, some of them would even be crucified. Peter was supposedly or told that he was crucified upside down. And he is praying for their protection because um, 
he says this that because of the ownership by the Father and the Son. Look at verse 9 again. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. And we saw last week that these are those who, who, who the Father divinely gives to the Son. This is what we call the doctrine of election. That the Father, in His electing purposes, has some before the foundation of the world, and He presents them to the Son. He goes on, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. You see this unity of the Father and the Son. And He says, I am, am glorified in them. And so you see this pattern that the Father sends to the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father. And now Jesus is sending the disciples, and, and they are glorifying Him. And by extension, eventually, we will glorify Him. And He goes, I, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. But that leads us to the question, if, if every one of these disciples was, was tortured and most of them were killed, in what, sense, in what sense did Jesus pray for their protection? Because I think many people today will think, oh, you know, as, when, when you become a Christian, everything is perfect. Nothing bad will ever happen to you again. These men went to, went to their deaths, with the exception of John, because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So in what sense were these disciples protected and I think we get a glimpse with the, uh, the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul is, is about to die. They're about to put him to death, and he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8, he says, For I am already poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come, meaning the time of my death is here, and I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And listen to this. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I think what, what Jesus is praying for is he's, he's praying for uh, protection by, by preservation, by, by perseverance. He's praying for them to be kept by the Father, to be kept in His Word, to be protected, not, not from losing their lives, but from losing their faith. So this protection is that they would persevere. And we see this in verse 11. He says this, he says, in the second part, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I mean, there's so much that we can unpack in this, in this passage, and I don't have time today, but you notice he says, Holy Father, keep them in, in your name. And we know that to, to speak of God's holiness means he's, he's so different, he's set apart, he's so different than, than who we are. And his name represents all that he is. What it is, it's the, all of the embodiment of, of his character and his his attributes, and it's His name and His character that, that Jesus appeals to. Jesus appeals to Him, Holy Father, I'm speaking to you because of Your name. Keep them in Your name. This is who You are. And do you think that if, if Jesus is praying this, 
that God is not going to answer that prayer. For every one that the Father has given the Son, the Son and the Father keep. Verse 12 says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. Again, Father, keep them in your name. Father, I have kept them up to this point. I've kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. See, Jesus has been, been guarding these disciples for, for three years. They, and really, from eternity, they were called to be his disciples. But he's been guarding them by, by the Father's name. And that, that name, again, is the character of God. And we see in, in, in John chapter 1, verse 18, it says this. It says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is the reflection of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, Hebrews says. And therefore, they're, they're kept in the Father's name by Jesus Christ. All that God is 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 represented in, in Jesus Christ, Christ. God's name has been kept in Jesus Christ, in His behavior, in His mission, in His faithfulness, in His character. So you have the Son praying to the Father and asking Him to keep them in the same way that they have been kept so far. And it, it is a prayer that Jesus is praying, and it's a prayer that the Father will answer. A.C. Gabeline says this, and this is quoted in uh, MacArthur's commentary. He says this, that keeping means everything. Keeping from falling away, from evil doctrines, from being overcome by sorrow, or in tribulation and suffering, keeping them in life and in death, From this first petition of our Lord's Prayer, we learn the absolute security of a true believer. If a true believer, one who belongs to Christ, who has been given by the Father to the Son, for whom the Son of God intercedes, can be lost, it would mean the loss of Christ's glory. I'm going to read that again. If a true believer one who belongs to Christ, who has been given by the Father to the Son, for whom the Son of God intercedes, can be lost, it would mean the loss of Christ's glory. Nobody, nobody can snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one can snatch them out of Jesus' hands. And we read in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable. What is our inheritance? It's what? Imperishable. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Again, these two words, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How could Peter, how could Peter say this? Because he heard Jesus pray for, his, for him. He knew that, that God would answer that prayer. And therefore, God is keeping his disciples and he's keeping us. Our passage goes on in, in verse 12, and we're going to look at this little exception it says in verse 12, while I was with them, 
I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except, except the son of destruction. He's speaking about Judas here, and he says that the scripture might be fulfilled. And so what Jesus is, is doing is he's looking back and he's reflecting on his faithfulness, that he, is, he has led these disciples and they're following him and, and, and he's keeping them. He's teaching them. He's protecting them. And at the heart of this, what we see is God's sovereignty, the sovereignty of God in keeping those who have faith in the Son of God. But I want us to notice this, that this sovereignty is, is not just, just something that is, is passive. I just mentioned this. He says in John chapter 10, Verse 27, he says, my, sh- my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I mean, in these two verses, he's, he's saying, look, those whom the Father has given me, they can never be lost. But then we ask this question, but what about Judas? Well, I would say first that he is not one that the Father had given him. He is not one that the Father had given him. No. No, it says that this happened that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. I mean, what Scriptures? It doesn't say here, but it could be Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12 through 13, where it says that he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. It could be Psalm 41, verse 9, even my, my close friend in whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It could be one of those. But if the question becomes, is, and, and this is a question that many people have asked, but if, if Judas was lost according to the Scripture, the question is, did Judas have a choice? And I would say, of course, of course he had a choice. Of course he, I think he was, of course, he was responsible. And this is where we, we, we get the tension in the Scriptures of the, the sovereignty of God and, and the responsibility of, of, of man. And we can't, we can't completely reconcile how these things are, but, but what we see is in, in God's Word, and we see this in the Old Testament, that, that there's times that, that the evil acts of men are, are part of the sovereignty of God and in carrying out his purposes. And we see this in, in the life of Joseph and his brothers, where his, his wicked brothers sold, sell him into slavery. And as he meets with them, at the, getting close to the end of his life, he says to them, brothers, what, what you meant for evil to me. Were Joseph's brothers guilty of selling him into slavery? Yes. What you meant for evil, God meant for good that many people would be saved alive. In the wicked acts of men, God has greater purpose in these. Eventually, every one of them will be dealt with. Now we see it. We see it here with Judas. We see it here in these Old Testament situations, but I think, I think it's most clearly seen in the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. Look at Acts chapter 4. We'll be looking at 
the middle of verse 24. And this is right after the disciples were released from, from prison. They were, they were threatened by the chief priests and the elders and come to verse 24 and all the disciples are so excited that they were, these disciples were free. And so in verse 24, all the disciples raise their voices and they say together, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Did these disciples believe in the sovereignty of God? <laughs> Absolutely. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So in, in verse 24, you see the sovereignty of God. In verse 25, you see the, the responsibility of men. They, they, they were raging. They were, they were plotting. They were setting themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. Then they come back and they say in verse 27, they say, for truly in the city they were gathered together against your, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Again, you have these, these two things. You have the, the sovereignty of God and the, and the responsibility of man and you know, Leon Morris, in his commentary on this, he says, God used that man, meaning Judas, that man's evil act to bring about his own purpose. In the end, God's will was done in handing over Jesus to be crucified. Now, he did not lose any that the, the Father had given him. Was, was Judas responsible? Yes. Was Pontius Pilate responsible? Yes. Was, were the scribes responsible? Yes. Was God sovereign? Yes. And he was carrying out his purpose for our benefit. Jesus did not lose any of those that the Father gave to him. And, and now he's leaving them and he, he's praying that the, the Father would protect them. And he, he, in verse 13, he prays for them that, that they would have joy in, in the midst of a world that hates them. And then in verse 14, he prays that they would be protected not only from the world, not only that, that God would preserve them, but that they would be protected from the evil one. Look at verse 14. It says, I have given them your word. Everything that the Father had given to the Son, he, Jesus passed on to us the truth of the gospel. And the world hates them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, you have, you know, you, you have this, these two realms, if I can say, they, these two dominions. You have the heavenly dominion and, and the worldly dominion. You have the heavenly Father, and then you have the God of this world, Satan himself. And these are at odds to one another. You have the, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. This is in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. Now, we think, well, why not, why not just take disciples out of the world? Anybody know why? 
Because they have a mission. If you took them out of the world, we wouldn't be here right now. No. They have a mission, and Father asked the, uh, but Jesus asked the Father to keep them from, from the evil one. And it shows that the, the world's hostility towards the gospel is, is really from the evil one. I mean, you, you simply read the, the parable of the sower in, in Matthew 13, and you see that it's the evil one who what? Wants to snatch away the word when it is proclaimed. We need to recognize the, our enemy's influence and hatred. I believe Pe- uh, Peter, in, in hearing this prayer of protection, he knows who the devil is. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? The devil has asked that Satan would be able to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, he says, he says this to, to us. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. How does Peter know that this will be true? Because he heard Jesus' prayer for them. He finishes with this. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God is protecting us because of this prayer of Jesus. And he's praying for you, and the Holy Father will, will answer that, that prayer of protection. And he, he's not asking them to be taken out of the world, but because they are on a mission. Now, I, this is a point in my sermon that I get to, to talk about a, a band of brothers quote. <laughs> Many of you know that it, I love <laughs> the band of brothers. I think it's a, a great series, and there's this one quote in one of the episodes, and it's, it's in the, the city of Beston, but it, it, it's known as the Battle of the Bulge. And in this, this battle, the, the Germans have surrounded the 101st Airborne Division. And they're there, and it's, it's the worst of times. It's, it's freezing cold, and they're surrounded, and they're getting shelled, and, and it's horrible, and they can't get out, and they, they you know, it's... It's such a bad time, and eventually, I think it's the 1st Armored Division, Patton comes in, and, and they, they beat the Germans, and, and now they're there, and they've been liberated. And this reporter's there, and he's interviewing some, some of the, I mean, this is going back in, during World War II, and they're being interviewed. So what do you, what do you, what do you think so, this, to this one? So what do you think that you've been rescued by Patton? And you see this anger get on his face. And he says, rescued? We didn't need to be rescued. Do we need to be rescued, brothers and sisters? Do we need to be taken out of this world? No, we are in a, we are in a battle. 
We are surrounded by our enemies. But this battle is to win souls. We don't need to be rescued out of the world. No, we need to be protected in the world. We need to be kept in the world. We need to be guarded in the world. That brings us to our our second point. Our second point is this, that Jesus prays for, for their sanctification because they're not of the world. He prays for their sanctification. Verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And what Jesus is praying for those, for those is he's praying for those features that, that will distinguish them from the world. Jesus prays for their sanctification. He, he prays for their, their holiness. And, and holiness or, or sanctification really has two aspects to it. One is to be separate, to be separate, that, that they would be different, just like the, the Heavenly Father is, is separate. The, he wants us to be separate. But, but another purpose of this word sanctifi- sanctification or to, to sanctify is to be um, set apart or to be holy morally. And so he's praying them because he wants us to stand out in a wicked world. And, and, and so we see that God is, is holy and, and separate in one of those ways, right? He's set apart. But, but God is holy and we are not yet holy. And so he, he speaks to us that, that we need to, to think clearly about these things. That, and, and Peter will actually say in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, you shall be holy, what for I am holy. Yeah, in one aspect, we need to be set apart for the, the purpose that God has for us. But another aspect is that we need to live holy and upright lives in this present age, waiting, as Paul will say in Titus, for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. As we're waiting, we need to live these lives. And so verse 16, he says, they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. What he means is this world is, is not our home. Paul will say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have one aspect, we, we separated ourselves from the world, but these disciples, they, they, they are not of the world. And I just want to make this side note, we, we are not in this world, and, and we are on a mission, and God has placed us here on this planet for a purpose, and that is to win souls. And if we are strangers and aliens, as he says, and he does say that, then it's important for us to gather, to gather and to get encouraged and to, re- to be reminded and to be exhorted to love and to good deeds and to call each other to, to go back into the mission field. Because as you well know that there are so many temptations out there that when you are isolated, that when you're home, when you're not fellowshipping with other believers, what? It's easy to just get sucked back into the world. I talked to a dear brother this morning about that. 
It's so easy that when we get isolated to be sucked back in the world, no, we need to gather and to encourage each other because we're in this battle together. You know, we're in this battle against the world and, and the flesh and, and the devil. We are, we are strangers and, and aliens, Peter says. And as we live in this world, the, the world is always trying to, to, to draw us back. John will say in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You know, more money is spent on marketing in this world than on most other things to get us sucked in, to, to want something that we, we don't need. Satan's strategy is so simple. If, if he can just get us attracted to the world and what it has to offer, uh, he, he wants to entice our, our flesh and to get us tempted. So we, we take our focus on the mission that God, off the, the mission that God has set before us. Don't be enticed by the world. He goes on in verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. This is so important for our mission, our sanctification, to be separate, to be holy. And he prays that we would be sanctified in truth. And, you know, this really has to, to do with the truth of, of God's word first, but also the truth of, of the living word, Jesus Christ. Being in a relationship with if you are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you cannot be sanctified in the truth. You cannot live a set-apart life. That's the first step that we, we, we put our faith and in, in trust in Christ. In fact, in John chapter 3, verse 21, it says this, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, if you're a person who is of the truth, that, that you are going to carry out the truths of, of God's word. The truth is, is, is practical. It's a, it begins with that, relationship, with, with that relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus will go on in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We have been blessed in, in this country, especially in, in the modern church, to have so many Bibles. You know, I was trying to think of how many Bibles I have at home. You know, I probably, you know, it could be 10, 20 Bibles. But brothers and sisters, you know, I, I don't want to, I think we need to encourage each other. We have these Bibles. They're God's love, love letter to us. We should, we should read it. We should desire to read it. We shouldn't have to read it. But when you think about it, for the first thousand, maybe the last 2,000 years, most people who are Christians don't even have their own copy of the Word of God. So how do we, how do we grow 
how do we be sanctified in, in God's truth if we don't have our own Bibles? Well, we know that the Holy Spirit teaches us all things. We know that the church proclaims the word of God. We know that we come and we sit under the teaching of God's word. And as we sit under the teaching of God's word, we are sanctified in, in the truth. And we, we should read our Bibles, and, and we know that God will sanctify us through the reading of his word, but there's other ways to be sanctified in the truth of God's word. Now, love it and read it. Brings me to our last point. Jesus prays about his, about his consecration because he is sending them into the world. Jesus prays about his consecration because he's sending them into the world. Verse 18 says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus is not asking them to do anything that he has not already done. We know that he was sent from heaven. He came and he suffered for us. He's sending them back into the world, and he's not sending them without the understanding that he has gone before them. Verse 90 says, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And Jesus came into the world with a purpose and, and a mission. You know, Jesus is, is so different than us. He came into the world with a purpose and a mission. And we know that he was a, a great high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. If you look at the, the title of my sermon, in, we are to be in, but not of, but sent into. You know, we hear that sometimes, don't we? We're supposed to be what? In the world, but not of the world. But I saw this as I was studying on desiring God. We're, we're to be more than that. We're to be in the world, but not of the world, but sent into the world. You know, the Father sends the Son, and the Son sends His, his disciples into the world. You know, separation from the world doesn't mean isolation from the world. You know, Jesus says, I have sent them into the world. This is the mission of the gospel. And they are going to face hostility, and Jesus knows this. And so he's, he's praying for them. And, and what that means is that, that we are to go and engage people with the gospel. The world is not the enemy. As, as I said earlier, it's, it's the mission field. And in verse 19, the Lord speaks to the Father, and he, he prays for his, his, consecra his consecration. That word consecration is really the same word as, as sanctified. Verse 19, he says, and, and for their sake I consecrate, or I, I sanctify, I set myself apart, that they also may be, may be sanctified in the truth. And, and I truly believe what Jesus is getting at here is this is an amazing verse because it's speaking about the cross. His consecration is that he's been set apart to go to the cross. So the means of our the means of our sanctification was, was Jesus setting himself aside from the world specifically for the cross. That's his consecration. He was set aside as, 
as our sacrifice. And His atoning sacrifice is the means of of our sanctification. It's also the motivation for our sanctification. And it's also the mission of our sanctification. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2? He says this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Is that what we are about? I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Is that a reflection on your life? As we engage people in the world, is that what we're thinking about? Is that, do, do we have a, an understanding of, of what our, our mission is? No, we're, if we are going to, to have or be effective in this mission, then we need to be set, sanctified in truth. We need to be set apart for God. The truth of what He said, the truth about what He has done, and ultimately the truth about the cross. And it's not just knowing It's not just knowing these things. No, it's doing these things. No, it's it's living out these these truths. So my question as we leave, as we end, is this. Are you being sanctified by by Jesus' truth? Are you being sanctified by Jesus' truth? Are you growing in your, your holiness? Are you growing in your walk with Him? Do you see your life as as something that Jesus has called you to as a, as a missionary to a, a world that desperately needs to know about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I come before you, and Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have sent your Son into the world and that he has sent us. Lord, we, we thank you that he has prayed this high priestly prayer that we might understand his great concern and, and love towards us that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we thank you for your, your amazing grace. Lord, let us be sanctified in your truth. In your son's name we pray, amen. The elders are up front if you need any prayer.